2: I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks, and this week we ask what makes Donald Trump's populism so potent? As the new president cuts a controversial swathe through his first days in office, populism in action is exciting his supporters, with clampdowns on immigration, a burst of quick-fire executive orders, and fights with institutions from the judiciary to the State Department. But what lies behind the new populist surge? John Judas is author of The Populist Explosion. He spoke to our U.S. editor, John Prideaux, who started by asking him what the difference was between right-wing populism and the left-wing kind.
0: Left-wing populism characterized American populist party, Huey Long, Bernie Sanders, opposition Wall Street, Podemos in Spain... Syriza in Greece tries to unite the lower and the middle of society against the top. It's a two-term. It's dyadic in that sense. It sees as a conflict between the people and what Sanders, let's call, say, called the billionaire class. Right-wing populism, conservative populism, also uh, sees a conflict between the people and the elite and has so many of the same complaints as as Trump did about a rigged economy, about corporations moving overseas and leaving workers in the lurch. But there's usually a third element, an other, uh, be they African-Americans, Muslims, uh, t- Muslim terrorists, uh, illegal immigrants, which the elite or establishment are seen as coddling, as favoring over the people. So that's that characterized, again, Trump, the Front National, uh, the Danish People's Party, um, UKIP in Britain, uh, the more right-wing populist parties. The thing I want to say, though, that, to qualify that is that let's say the the Front National Marine Le Pen in France, their domestic program is way to the left of the leadership of the Democratic Party in the United States on, you know, capping credit card charges, uh, universal health care, regardless of your income or location and so on. It's, in many ways, the left-right distinctions don't, in some way are defied. You you know, there's all these complaints about Donald Trump not being a normal Republican. And indeed, he's not, because a normal Republican wouldn't be defending Social Security and Medicare and complaining about corporations moving uh, to Mexico. So again, those are positions which, again, you'd find more in the Democratic Party of the left. So again, take my distinction between left-wing and right wing populism, but understand that we are in a peculiar kind of time in the, both the United States and Western Europe where politics is in turmoil and the usual definitions of left and right, left center, right center are getting mixed up. And it's hard to characterize uh, these populist parties because they are themselves signs that the ordinary politics uh, is breaking up, that the prevailing consensus uh, is under
1: attack. I wondered also reading the book where the one thing that's characteristic of populism, both on the left and on the right, is to deny that there are difficult trade-offs in politics. There's a kind of have your cake and eat it element to populism. And you write about Huey Long and you know, his program for giving you know, every American a family, a car and a house and a radio, you know, the share our wealth societies. And it's hard not to read Donald Trump's stuff about Obamacare saying, you know, everybody can have much better health care and it can be much cheaper. I think that this is also, you know, kind of part of the same strand. And what then follows from that, I think, in populism is that there has to be some reason why this isn't being, this incredibly obvious thing isn't being done at the moment, and then you get into you know the populism on the right. So you mentioned in the book you get into scapegoating sometimes. You know populism on the left you get into kind of you know bashing of greedy elites.
0: Right. Uh, the the look. I, I I think you put it in maybe the most pejorative sense, and, and and I'd put it in a more neutral way, which is that the populist um, parties, candidates, movements are usually based upon demands that it, that the establishment or elite, which include both the leading parties, are unwilling to grant. The, the best example in America was Bernie Sanders, Medicare for All, and free a college tuition to public universities. Now, those are demands that you could not get through the present Congress in any conceivable set of circumstances that I could imagine. Yet they're not unreasonable. Canada, Western Europe, there are things that, that can, can be done. So, again, the, the defining characteristic isn't so much um, pie in the sky uh, per se, but things that the that the elite won't grant, and so that, and that's why they're popular. That's why they see this difference between people and the elite. Um, sometimes, what happens to these parties is that they get into power and they find that they can't do it. I mean, the Gre- Gre- Greece, Syriza, we're gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna put up with these terms of austerity that the troika has imposed upon us. Uh, But they get into power and they find they can't do it and they have to give in. And so in that sense, um, they cease to be populist. They become kind of another left center uh, uh, party. Uh, We'll have to see what happens uh, with Trump because he's struggling right now between uh, the kinds of, you know, we're going to we're going to maintain health insurance for everybody, but it's going to be cheaper uh, on the one hand, and his, the Republican leadership, which wants to basically gut the whole program and uh, create a program that has, you know, less access and will turn out to be more expensive, but you know, the doctors and hospitals and the insurance companies will make out like bandits. That's my pejorative version of that. But I'm just saying, yes, I'm, I I think that there is this kind of conflict. And when a populist candidate happens to succeed and get into power, that's when, that's when you see this kind of, uh, because they become in effect the establishment and what are they going to do now and these demands,
1: you know, are they going to actually go through with them? And in the book, you follow an economic um, explanation for the current wave of populism, which we the kind of thing we like at The Economist. You talk about the after effects of the financial crisis. While the presidential election was on last year, while the campaign was on, there were a lot of people who were talking about Donald Trump's uh, populism in cultural terms, particularly in terms of race. Tell me why you think it's right to kind of focus on, on the economics.
0: Look, I I don't focus only on economics, but what I've been trying to combat is the view that it's all about what white supremacy or misogyny uh, or, you know, some kind of um, uh, secret alliance with Putin, which I think, again, misstates uh, what uh, Trump is about and what populism is about. In the United States, we've had this kind of discontent. You know, in, in Britain, you call them the left behinds. We've had this group within the mi- middle and working class that have felt uh, besieged, uh, both from the top and the bottom. Uh, at times, it's manifested itself in a racial politics, uh, George Wallace in the 1960s. Uh, at times, in a more um, cultural religious, the, the religious right what distinguishes the, this present period of populist upsurge in America is that it was prompted by the Great Recession and that that's a major theme. It's not the only theme. It's not the only consideration. If you listen to Trump's speeches, and I, you know, went around with him, and you could just leave him take his current press conference. What did he lead off with in his press conference? Ford, Carrier, all these companies, are, are I've stopped them from moving their plants to Mexico. He didn't lead off with, you know, Mexicans or rapists or, uh, you know, whites or better. In fact, I never heard him say anything like, the the you know, the some of the things that are attributed to him, in terms of white nationalism, I'm not trying to. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not not trying to say. That his proposals make sense to me, or that they're good or bad, but that the the upsurge of which Sanders and Trump were a part comes in the wake of the Great Recession, and that's a major theme. And that you can't say that, in fact, it had no, you know, economic anxiety was irrelevant. I, I, I just to, one other thing about it: if you look at Trump's vote in the in the um, uh, 2016 election and where he did well and where the election is won. And then if you look at a, at a, at a map of where the United States lost manufacturing jobs from 2000 to 2016, there is this remarkable match The biggest states for one of them, well, you'd guess Michigan, but the second biggest state was North Carolina. Again, a state Trump wasn't supposed to win and that he won. The furniture industry, a lot of it moved to Mexico. So again, I think that that's a, I wasn't saying that that's the only issue and that there aren't all these other elements, the nativism, what have you, but that you can't have to, that you have to
1: understand that that's a big part of it. So one of the things you write about in the book is the way in which populism in politics often begins, sort of on on the fringes, you know, making taking positions on policies that seem, you know, way out of the mainstream and completely impractical, and sort of dismissed by many people who are currently in power. And then sometimes what happens is that gradually they get, you know, co-opted. A populist you know, becomes a nominee of a party. You think William Jennings Bryan use the example in the book of the progressive income tax which was you know thought as a of as a kind of out there idea and then you know becomes kind of you know mainstream in in uh, America in the middle of the 20th century let's throw this forward a little bit we have a republican uh, president who has some populist elements to his platform uh, who's won the nomination of his party have we actually already seen the kind of incorporation of populism uh, into the party? Was that what the election of Trump was? Or, or are there sort of things now on, on both right and left in American politics that are sort of currently a bit fringy that you think will be kind of mainstream by the middle of next decade, say?
0: Yeah. You know, it's hard to say because we have the two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, are very close in terms of their support. Uh, and the Democrats have different kind The populist elements and the Democrats are a little different from those in the Republicans. Let's just talk about Trump for a minute and what's unusual about him and the question of whether it's going to go forward. I, I, I think the thing to look at in terms of him is not so much populism, which again is political campaigning, but nationalism as the really the key underlying substantial element. And with him, it's not, I I don't think it's put on. It goes back 20 or 30 years. You can find it. Military foreign policy. America has to uh, worry about itself skepticism about entangling alliances, burden sharing with NATO. He put on a, in 1987, he had a full-page ad in the New York Times about burden sharing in NATO. So this isn't any new stuff with him. The economic nationalism, getting uh, jawboning companies uh, not to move overseas and and uh, leave workers in the lurch. The immigration, I think, again, you know, uh, he's not going to deport uh, 12 million I think that again was uh, in order to appeal to the campaign. In fact, what he's now says he's doing is no different from what Obama did, which is to deport criminals, which you know makes a lot of sense. So but still, I think he will be much more vigilant about illegal Im- immigrants coming into the country. There will be some kind of a, of a wall. The test for me with Trump and whether he can succeed politically is not so much the, uh, those parts as the part of him that is uh, still a New York Democrat. What is he going to do about uh, Obamacare? Is he going to leave again the uh, 18 million people without insurance? Is he going to accept Uh, the congressional leadership's uh, desire to privatize in some way our Social Security and Medicare system. You know, if he can do those, if he fights them on those things and succeeds, and if he actually comes up with some kind of a a semblance of a health care replacement, he could have a successful presidency.
2: Author John Judas talking to our U.S. editor, John Prideau, there. That's all from The Economist Asks this week from me and McElvoy in London. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.